Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Our first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you shall glory. Because their shame was double, and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot, therefore they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, Whereas the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in our second reading, the New Testament Gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples Came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. I've stood on the banks of the impressive St. Lawrence River in New York State and in Montreal and Quebec City, but I had never before encountered the story of its namesake. The original St. Lawrence was an early Christian saint. He served as a deacon in the third century. A wave of persecution began and Pope Sixtus and others were killed. Lawrence could see the handwriting on the wall and knew his time was short. He was keeper of the church's goods and responsible for giving alms to the poor. As the persecution widened, he gave out even more alms. The Roman officials insisted that Lawrence hand over the church's treasure. He asked for three days to get everything in order. In those three days, Lawrence passed on all the possessions that he could to the poor. When the Roman officials arrived at the church, they saw not a church filled with silver and gold, but one filled with the poor, the blind, the lame, the lepers. Here are the treasures of the church, declared Lawrence. The officials were incensed, and Lawrence was soon executed. The story is hard to hear, and I worry about how those Roman officials treated the people found in the church. But I sense that St. Lawrence understood the Beatitudes through and through. He looked to the same poor and needy people who surrounded Jesus in the early days of the church. He helped them, and he announced to the powers of the time that they were treasured. In struggling with the text for this sermon, I picked up a commentary and read, in the Beatitudes we encounter one of the most beautiful, most familiar, and least understood passages of the Christian scriptures. This is my experience, and it's always reassuring when I can document that I'm not alone in my cluelessness. From my earliest days, I appreciated the poetic appeal of the Beatitudes, but I could not settle on an interpretation. The verses didn't really fit into my early Jesus saves us and we go to heaven when we die um, summary of theology. I got tangled up in questions about the Beatitudes. Should they be taken as one message or as if each individual verse were its own isolated message? Did all of them apply to every Christian? Or were they recognizing God's favor on people who might not profess Christianity at all? 
I was distracted by all the different words used in the concluding phrases of each statement. I wondered if receiving the kingdom of heaven and inheriting the earth and being filled with righteousness and seeing God and being children of God were all poetic terms for the same outcome, or should I, should I know that they had individual meanings? Jesus' pronouncements were in the form of blessings, but were they also statements of instruction about how I should live as a Christian? Mark Twain said, most people are bothered by those passages of scripture they do not understand, but the passages that bother me are those I do understand. Truth be known, I was bothered by both when it came to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the opening for what we have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Jesus is early in his ministry. The gathering crowds are not the robust and well-heeled leaders of the day, but those in need of a healer. Jesus healed them, and then he went up on a mountain and sat. Matthew writes in such a way as to connect Jesus with Jewish history and expectations. He notes that um, Jesus' sitting position, he notes Jesus' sitting position, which would have told his readers that Jesus was like the esteemed teachers of the first century who sat down to teach. The idea of a teacher or a prophet speaking from a mountain would have connected the crowds with Moses, who brought the Ten Commandments back from his encounter with God on Mount Sinai. People who were hopeful that Jesus was the promised Messiah may have been hopeful for a new law. The first teaching they received was the Beatitudes. One of the challenges of the Beatitudes is understanding what and who Jesus is talking about and in what time frame. Again, I know I'm not the only one with these questions because writings on the Beatitudes bring the folks who study grammar and vocabulary and translational variations, they, they bring them out of the woodwork. So bear with me if that type of discussion is not your thing. The word blessed in these verses is also sometimes translated as happy or favored or honored. The word happy may be used in our culture to refer to very trivial positive emotions, so it seems not the best fit. The word translated in, as blessed in this context is associated with consecrated happiness, as in receiving God's favor. The Beatitudes have a certain format. The verses are in the, in the opening phrase are in the present tense, blessed are, suggesting that Jesus is not anchoring the blessing in a heaven to come. But the specific of the outcomes are in the future tense, mostly. They will inherit the earth or receive mercy and so forth. This seems to be an intentional dissonance that aligns with much of Jesus' teaching. The idea that the reign of God is already and not yet. Here, but also coming. Jesus starts the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? The image from the Greek word translated as poor is that of a pauper, one who has nothing. 
The poor in spirit do not have external structures such as wealth or power or prestige or even family structure to help with their spiritual identity. They come to God empty, if you will. The parts of our lives that we treasure, and certainly the parts most valued in our culture, may be stumbling blocks for our relationship with God. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. All of us mourn at one time or another. We may mourn for a very personal, individual loss, or the loss of a loved one, or we may mourn for our communities, or our nation, or our world. And mourning may be the only response we can make to a devastating situation. Many times, it is through this mourning that we become open to God's presence. An early 4th century father of the church from Syria, known as Ephraim, understood the connection between mourning and turning to God. He is said to propose that tears be designated as a sacrament and to say that until you have cried, you have not known God. Verse 5 is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? In 1967, Simon and Garfunkel sang, Blessed are the meek, the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on. Probably very little has changed for the meek in 2,000 years. Much like the poor in spirit, the meek were those without status, the powerless. The idea of inheriting the earth harkens back to the ownership of land. And land ownership at the time of the New Testament was anything but equitable, with wealth concentrated in a few hands of those who had gained ownership through oppression and violence. Culturally, there was no recognition that the land, as with all things, ultimately belongs to God. Jesus looked at the larger spiritual picture and made it clear to the disenfranchised that under the reign of God, the tables are turned. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In the Psalms and other Old Testament passages, the longing for God is often expressed as hunger or thirst. Righteousness speaks to living aligned with the will of God, carries a message that's broader than that of individual morality. It speaks of justice. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy can take several forms acts of kindness or comfort as well as forgiveness, which is probably the main meaning in this, this verse. The Lord's Prayer echoes this beatitude. We practice forgiveness knowing that God has forgiven us, and we forgive knowing that as we forgive others, God will forgive us. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Psalm 24 refers to one with a pure heart as one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Purity of heart does not seem to refer to any one moral characteristic, but rather the undivided focus of the heart on God. The audience at the time may have heard through this beatitude a caution against relying on Jewish purification rituals, to ensure purity of heart, 
just as we are not to lie, rely on any external show of piety that does not reflect the heart. Verse 9, which we've already heard a good sermon on. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This implies not just a passive personal approach to conflict, but an active seeking of that eternal peace given by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The people listening to Jesus would have heard these words against the backdrop of the Roman occupation. The Romans prided themselves on being peacekeepers and lending political stability to the lands they occupied, but their outcomes were achieved through violence and oppression aimed at the conquered people. Jesus' listeners would have heard the stark contrast between the Roman methods of preaching, of peacemaking, and the way of Jesus. Verse 10 and 11 seem to fit together as one. They speak of persecution. In verse 11, Jesus' language switches to the second person. He says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. With that transition, we can see that Jesus has moved from a universal focus to the here and now of the first century. It's likely that as Matthew's community was reading or hearing these words, that they were experiencing persecution. And yet, we can't expect persecution to only be a thing of the past. As 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr reminds us, if the gospel is preached without opposition, it is simply not the gospel which resulted in the cross. In short, it is not the gospel of love. Taken individually, the ideas expressed in the Beatitudes were not foreign to Jewish thought and spiritual teachings, but they did not answer the popular demands of the day. The demand for relief from foreign rule and oppression through a political and military opposition, or the demands for a return to former glory days of the kingdom of Israel. Taken together, the Beatitudes give a powerful veto to the then popular image of a kingdom of God, which would be brought about by force against enemies. This is the time of the church year when we revisit the question of who Jesus is. We celebrated his birth a short month ago, and now we're studying scriptures about his early ministry. One interpretation of the Beatitudes is that they are Jesus' self-portrait. The Beatitudes show us Jesus. They show us the Jesus who could empty himself of vain and self-aggrandizing temptations. They show us the Jesus who looked to God for comfort, the Jesus who embodied meekness without accepting oppression. They show us the Jesus who offered mercy, and acted nonviolently and maintained purity of heart. They show us the Jesus who looked for justice and longed for righteousness. Some years ago, I encountered the term forensic religion. It refers to a faith 
heavily characterized by themes of crime or offense and punishment. The Ten Commandments are concerned with creating and reinforcing the religious and social order. These and the legal framework of the Old Testament and some of the teachings of the New Testament can push us in the direction of this forensic religion. In contrast, the Beatitudes don't provide a new law so much as they take exception to the social order. They push us towards an entirely different framework, one that values permeation of life with an openness and yielding to God. We can see God's children as God sees them, valuing the poor and the unwell and the distraught, categories that fit all of us in one way or another. As we begin to see what life could be through immersion in the Beatitudes, we must remain fixed on our eternal, all-encompassing need for God and redemption through his Son, Jesus Christ. If we see the Beatitudes as new goals that we can achieve, we are buried in legalism once more. We're also coming before God not as one poor in spirit, but as one with false assurances of our own spiritual aptitude. In the last couple of decades, the Beatitudes have been entering my consciousness unexpectedly, maybe through moments of loss or an encounter with a person, many of whom are here today, who unquestionably exemplifies the poor in spirit or the meek or the merciful or the peacemaker. In spite of any ongoing confusion I might have about syntax or meaning, I cannot escape the Jesus that we see in the Beatitudes. Catholic priest and writer Richard Rohr has described my experience well. In acknowledging the challenges of living a life shaped by the Beatitudes, he describes them as a second half of life spirituality. We might think for a moment of the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, verse 22, who approaches Jesus to ask what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus reminds the young man of the commandments. And the man says, teacher, I've kept these all my life. This man had kept the social and religious order taught by the law. But he rejects the second half of life, spirituality, that Jesus next asks of him, which is to sell his possessions, give money to the poor, and follow Jesus. The man was shocked, much as we may be shocked when we come to see what the Jesus of the Beatitudes asks of us. Amen. <laughs>